Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If you're happy to be in the house of God this morning, just give God a clap offering this morning. And for those of you joining us online, it is great. It is great to have you with us this morning. Everybody out there, it's great to see you. Um, how's everybody been? You've been good? It, it's actually very good to see a lot more people coming into the house of God because, trust me, there's no better place to be, especially at a time like this. And this is sort of, um, actually, we don't need to pray because Nyeka prayed. So in case you're wondering why I'm not praying, that's why. Um, today we're going to talk about something, a very sort of simple topic, right? It's so simple that the, in a way, we've made it common, and now it's been misunderstood. And that topic is the love of God. I say it's very simple because almost each and every one of us here in our minds, we know, we say, God loves me, right? We say to one another, God loves you, brother, sister, God loves you. But what exactly does that statement mean? What does it mean when we say God loves us or when we talk about the love of God? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I want you to write this statement down if you're taking notes. And as much as possible, I want you to remind yourself of this statement from today. What's this statement? It is this. We must all remember that God sent his son into this world not to make bad people good, but to raise dead men to eternal life. I'm going to read it again just so if you didn't take it before, you have a chance again. We must all remember that God sent his son into this world not to make bad people good but to raise dead men to eternal life. The reason why we're putting down this statement and we're talking about it as the foundation is sort of this understanding, the basis of this has distorted the way we see this life that we have in Jesus Christ and when we say we're loved by God and we're called into a new family. Most of us have sort of relegated it and limited it to this idea of, I don't sin and I do good. And that's all that this is about. But today I want us to open up that idea and go back to the basis of what it is. Where as common as we all know this scripture that says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We don't just quote that as a passing scripture, but we start to understand the basis of that scripture. That scripture, one singular verse, starts with love, starts with love and ends with eternal life, starts with the love of God and ends with eternal life for you and for me. 
but for us to really understand the love of God, we're going to really first dive into an issue that would help us to properly understand the love of God. Because if we don't go into this area, we will continue to have that limited understanding that Christian life is just about I do good, I don't sin, and we'll forget all else that God has for us. And what we're going to talk about first, you can write this down, it said the reality of Adam's sin. All right? Because when many of us hear that, oh, Jesus came to die for our sins and to do all that stuff, what we think is that Jesus Christ came to die for, you know, the, the lie you told yesterday or the, maybe you cheated in an exam. I'm just using, you know, different levels. Maybe you cheated in an exam. Maybe you stole something from your mom or you did something. Or maybe, you know, you forged something in your account at work. See, most of us think that when we say Jesus came to die for our sins, we think that's what it is. And so every time we do something that's considered wrong, you know, morally wrong and all of those things. We are quick to repent and to all those things. Not saying that those things are not important or that that's not one of the reasons. But to limit your Christian life to just that, it is very shy of what Jesus Christ came to give to us as a gift. And that's what we're going to touch on today. We're going to start to dwell on these things that make the sacrifice of Jesus so much more important and so much more valuable to us than just mere, I don't tell lies, right? So we're talking about the reality of Adam's sin as first. If we open Romans 5 from verse 12 to 14, it says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. It's so funny because that first part in verse 12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. In other words, there's an entity of sin, right? The Bible says sin was found in Satan, evil was found in him, right? When Adam sinned, his sin, which was just disobeying God, you know, not believing what God said, it did something, right? And that's what that scripture is telling us. It did something that we might not always be attentive to. It says when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world. In other words, there was once a time in this world where sin was not in the world. But when Adam decided to not believe the word of God and obey the enemy. Sin entered into this world, right? Let's read Romans 6, 16, and we'll see something impressive there in the Bible. It says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? 
you can be slave to sin. Here's that word again. Here's that entity. You can be slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. So you see here again, it says, don't you realize you become slave to who you choose to obey? You could choose to be a slave to sin when you obey sin, when you obey the inclinations of sin. And what did Adam do? That's the sin. Adam chose to obey the inclination of the enemy. And in that one singular act, because we were all in him, he was the first, he's the creation, just the same representation of Jesus. But because he chose to obey, he yielded and became a slave to sin. And once he did that, all of us, along with him, were subject in that same manner. Because out of him is where we came. I want us to see this. Why? Because it's so important. Whenever we look at the sin of Adam, let's not just look at it as, oh, he, he and Eve ate the fruit. Yeah, sure, big deal. But what they really did was they subjected the whole of humanity to slavery under sin because they chose to obey what he said. And we know that the, the sting of death is sin. So once sin entered the world, death was inevitable. And that's why when, Jesus, when God told them, he says, don't eat of this food, for in the day you eat it, you will what? You will surely die. It's surprising when they ate the fruit, they didn't drop dead. They never dropped dead. As a matter of fact, they lived considerably after in the physical sense, right? But what really happened there was the death God was speaking about was they've now subjected themselves to someone who has, who sin is itself. And the sting of death is sin because wherever sin exists, the wages, the eventual outcome the reward of sin is inevitably death. That scripture, if we, the one we read before, it continued to tell us. It says in verse 13, Romans 5 verse 13, it says, Yes, people sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not yet anyone, any law to break. Verse 14, still everyone died. Still everyone died. The death of this physical body is not just because God created this body to die in that sense. No. Death, even the physical death that we die, is just a representation of the spiritual death that has happened first. Because the moment they ate the fruit, the death happened. Death came in, and even our physical body was subject to that death. And so people were dying before the law was given. And this is one of the bases of which we're going to speak today, which is even though the law was not there, people still experience death. So if God was to do something about this issue, why would his center of attention be creating a system where human beings can go and obey law? When even when there was no law, there was still death. 
it was a fundamental issue deeper than just doing good or doing bad. That mere act of obeying the enemy created a new kind of nature in man. Sin entered and it distorted everything about us. From there, they started seeing things. You know, they saw that they were naked. I mean, I want you to imagine for a second, God created a precious body, glorious. And the moment they sinned, they saw nakedness. What used to be glory was now considered nakedness. Everything started to go down, literally. And that's the, that's the crux of the issue when you're looking at it. Jesus coming is a, is a bigger issue stemming from the love of God. Yes, but it's a bigger issue. It's funny, earlier in this year, I was reading a book. It's called The One Thing. And in this book, the author was saying, whenever there's an issue, something, a problem, you can always narrow it down to the most important thing that once you solve that one important thing, everything else starts to change on its own. The one thing. And as I read that book and I started to study the word of God, I started to look at what was the one thing that God came to do to solve. And why, why did he do all this? What's the reason? And it all stems from this idea that it's the love of God, the love that he has towards us. He is love, yes, but he has a special kind of love towards you and me. And this love, today we'll see the realities of it, that it's not just, oh yeah, God loves you, God loves you, but it's a comprehensive package. Like it, when he says it, he has given us all we need for life and godliness, today we'll open it up and see that the love of God for us stems into every area of our lives and is bigger than just don't tell lies. If we read Romans 5, 17 to 19, this is just the last scripture we'll read just to set the template right and then we'll move on to the love of God. It says, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. 18. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> because of one disobedience, death ruled over all of us, including creation, including our bodies, including, you know, maybe it wouldn't have been bad to be able to go to the Alps in the dead of winter and to not feel cold. But even creation suffered. But what was the one thing? This is God's one thing. 
But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who, live, who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through one man, Jesus Christ. Through one man, Jesus Christ. That no matter what you are seeing, that no matter what kind of death, decay, and whatever you're seeing or experiencing, that through one man, you can enter into a new life. No longer under the rulership or the subjection of sin or death, but now having the ability and the eternal life of God in you. In other words, you go back to a space where God originally designed. This place where you are no longer under the servitude of sin and your flesh, but that because of Jesus, you can receive eternal life. Life, which is that there is no longer any enmity between you and God. There's no longer any separation. The garden that Adam had to leave because he has subjected to Adam, you can go back to Eden because of Jesus Christ. And what is Eden? It's just the place where the presence of God is. Right? So we start to see something that is amazing that happened, which is where we're going to start on the issue of God's love. The first reality of God's love is this. It's in sacrifice. It's in the sacrifice that he made for us. The Bible tells us in 1 John 4, 9-10, it says this is how God shows his love amongst us. Remember, we are dead, right? Up until where we are. Because of Adam, we are dead. But let's look at the love of God and sacrifice through Jesus so we can start to see why we anchor our faith in Jesus and why the love of God is great. It says, this is how God shows his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the first reality of God's love towards you, whenever you say God loves me, whenever you tell somebody God loves you, the first reality that should stretch your mind is that I used to be dead. Not that I used to be a bad person, no. There's no bad person like... We used to be dead, void of life. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of how much God loves us, he sent Jesus. And that's the first example of it, is that he sent Jesus as a sacrifice for an atonement for you and I. He came to settle the one thing that could separate you from God, which was sin. He came to settle that with his blood shed and everything. He came to do that. Why? So that you and I could be able to go back into Eden and have the presence of God with us all day long. Right? I will, it, it seems so simple, right? It seems very simple, but it is the absolute truth. And the simplicity of it is why most times we think of it and we're just like, no, it's too easy. But the truth is, Jesus did not die so that you can say, oh, now I'm a good person. No, he died so that the price 
for the sin that was in us, right, would be paid completely. And then beyond that was that we will be able to have access to the Father because now we are in Him and then He goes to the Father. So, this is the part that even when I was studying this, the moment I started on Jesus, I started to get excited. Right? Because it's such a wonderful work that is done, a perfection in Jesus Christ. You are, you and I were dead. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, it says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the power in your sin world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated, him, seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to all future ages of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all that he has done for those who are united in Christ. So if we see that, he finished it to the point where the judgment that was passed on Adam and how they had to leave the presence of God, Christ paid the price and brought them in himself back to the presence of God. I'm telling you, when we start, once we start going down, you realize that getting back into the presence of God is the best thing that can happen to you. It's the best place you can be. You know how when you read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, you're always reading and you're always excited. You're like, oh, this is so wonderful. Like everything is perfect, beautiful, created, amazing. Eating grapes for lunch. Jesus brought you back in. I told you it's simple. It's simple, but it's so, sometimes you have to fight it to let it in. That simplicity of it. Right? So the first reality of God's love is his sacrifice for us. Right? And the second reality is commitment. Right? How many of us have been in love? You know, you're in love, you get married. There's something about commitment. It's, it solidifies this love that you have. And God through Jesus, he was not void of that as well. He committed to us. So the second reality of God's love towards us is in, a, in his commitment towards us, right? I want to read this statement to you. It says, the sacrifice of Jesus brings access, not rules. Jesus came to bring God's children back into the family of God. God has brought us through the sacrifice of Jesus into a new lineage and nation, a nation of kings and priests where Jesus is the high priest and the spirit of God dwells in us as a sealed indication that we belong to Jehovah's family. 
I'll just tell them to write it in the sermon after because to read it again is too long. And <laughs> that important aspect of Jesus bringing us into the family, right? He brings you back into the presence of God, back into Eden where you can talk to God. Think about Eden again, for example. Like Adam had fellowship with God inside Eden. There was no separation. There was no pastor. There was no, none of those things. It was just God and Adam. God, everything they were doing, God, Adam, direct contact. You see where I'm going now? Is it beginning to make sense? Right? Jesus brings back. You remember when Jesus died, there was something significant that happened in the temple. It says the curtain was torn, what? Into two, from top to bottom. What did that signify? The holies of holies that humans could not enter. Where there was never access to just anyone. Jesus Christ, on his death, says, access granted to everyone in me. You don't have to wait for Moses. You have Jesus. Anyways, let's go on. So that's the second reality is his commitment towards you. All right, let's, let's read a scripture. Colossians 1, 11 to 14. He said, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. This is our reality. Go to Ephesians 1, 12 to 14. It says, God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ will bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believe in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we will praise and glorify him. See, because when pastor is teaching about the Holy Spirit and all of these things, we think, okay, this is just something that, you know, the pastors need so that they will know, you know, they can pray for you, they can do all these things. But here, this scripture is telling us that the Holy Spirit is, the, the Holy Spirit in us is not just for us to be like, oh yeah, I can speak in tongues. No, 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 no. He's a sign to you. Right? He's a sign to you. Right? Something happened the day that myself and my wife were getting married. Yeah? They asked her, Pastor was the one that was asking. He was like, Do you take Anu Yasu to be your? Yeah. And she was like, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right. And then they took a ring and the ring was put in my finger. And he said, Let this be a sign. Right? So now the Holy Spirit was put in you and I as a sign so that the, when the rest of the world is looking, at your life, they see different kind of expressions in you. And so, because of the Spirit of God in you, the world can say, ah, no, that guy, he belongs to God. 
He's different. And for you to always remember that while you are doing all these things, while you're walking, the spirit in you lets you remember that you belong to God. You belong to God. You have been bought with a price. You are no longer under the rulership of sin or death. Like every time you remember the Holy Spirit, you should just be feeling happy straight up. Like every time you are aware of the Holy Spirit and his guidance, you should, there should be a joy. That's what that first scripture we read said, that to remind you of the joy, right? That God has committed to you. So when you think about God's love, the first thing I want you to think about is he paid the price. He has sacrificed for me. He didn't stop there. He has put his spirit in me so that I can know that I am, I am his own. I, I want you to see in Romans 8, 15 to 16, it says, so you have not received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. To affirm to you, not just for you that you can speak in tongues and be happy. No, no, no. When you are speaking in tongues, you should be like, there was one day in prayer. I, I, I share this, baby. Sorry. There was one day in prayer. We were praying in the morning. And I started praying. And at some point, I felt like I was talking directly to Jesus and thanking him for the sacrifice. And I was just like, this is, this is it. Where I stopped thinking of the sacrifice of Jesus and the death of Jesus as just this thing we read in the Bible. But I come to the realization of it and I can access it and see the realities of it. Where he's leading me in everyday life. That you are being led by the spirit of God should make you happy that you are, you are a child of God, man. Anyways, let's move on. Uh, the third reality of God's love is this. Guidance and empowerment. I told you it's not, it's not just God loves you and that's it. There's sacrifice that is in it. There's commitment in the love of God. And this third part, guidance and empowerment. Because so many times I know... And we need to talk on this subject. It's the idea of, you know, doing the good things, you know. You're not telling lies. Because those things are important. Let's not kid ourselves. God is a holy God. Like, if we think he's not holy, we're deceiving ourselves. If we think he can behold sin, we're deceiving ourselves. But the truth is, whenever he looks on us, he's looking at Jesus. But at the same time, he still wants us to grow, to develop, to grow as his children. Right? So he puts his spirit in us as a sign that we are his own. But his spirit also starts to do a kind of work in us, right? I told you that everything that we need is in his love. It's all there. This is the third phase where he has put his spirit in you so that you know that you belong to him. But now this spirit can start to do a work in you and I, right? So what then happens, right? What about the rules? What about the commandments? Like should we then all just go and keep sinning? All of that stuff. But the truth is, we don't have to do that, right? And that is important. Why? Because there's a scripture that says that those who accept my commandments, in other words, God's commandments, are those who love him. And those are who he will show himself to. So if that's the case, what, 
are we not supposed to be following the Ten Commandments and making sure everything we are doing is perfect? This is true. And you will not be wrong to think that way. But just this last week, I was studying this subject. And this phrase that Jesus used to say when he was on earth stuck to me again. And God gave me a revelation in the, how the Holy Spirit is part of this. When Jesus was walking the earth, he said, I only do what I see my father do. And I only say what I hear my father say. And the more I looked at that statement, the more I realized. He then said something to us. He said, I am going to the father, but I will send another person in my stead, the advocate, the Holy Spirit. He will lead you into all truth. He will not speak of himself. He will only speak what he hears the Father, speak. Jesus only did what the Father did. He gave us his spirit so that we'll know that we are his own. So he, in essence, was showing us how this new life in the kingdom of God is. It's not per se about rule keeping, but it's more so about being guided. Being guided. And I was telling my wife this one morning when we were praying. Because the Holy Spirit cannot speak of himself and can only speak to you what God is saying, if you are listening and being guided by the Holy Spirit, guess what you're going to be doing? What? What? What God is doing. What God is saying. And if you are doing what God is saying and what he is doing, how can you sin? No, because some of us have been reading that story of the fig tree and we thought, Jesus, God, man, this fig tree was just trying to blossom. And you, you got there and you were like, man, no man eat from you ever again. You can read that and think, man, Jesus, that was hostile. Or when he went into the temple and like whipped people up and you were like, Jesus, man, that's hostile. But if you don't recognize that Jesus only says and does what his father does, you, you can be distorted in the way you interpret God's scripture. And I'll tell you, rules and law keeping never helped anybody. Think about the Pharisees, right? Because there's good things and there's things that God wants us to do. Right? You can see it in the, in the teachers earlier. They, they said to their people, oh, if you, you know, you're bringing your offering to the temple, but your family, your parent is sick, should you bring the money to the temple or use to help your family? And they said, Jesus was telling them, he said, you're hypocrites because you think it's just about bringing this sacrifice. But what he's really after is in the love that they show towards their family. He told them, like, didn't you read about David when he was hungry? He went into the temple to eat the grain that was reserved for the priests. He kept so many times telling them while he was on earth that you people think about the law. But I, Jesus, right, I'm the representation of the love of God. And once the love of God is evident in some place, the guidance of the spirit is there. And the spirit will guide into all things that are good, where there will be no sin. 
right? So the spirit he has given us as a sign that we are his own. And the spirit also as our personal guide, as our personal guide for everyday life. So that you will live your life not thinking that, oh, I'm always having to think, oh, yes, I, did I tell a lie? This? That's, that's a basic life. That's so basic. Like, oh, did I commit sin? Did I tell this lie? No. He said he has, he has he, he, he saved us and he, he has pre- preparing us for the good works that he has prepared for us long ago. I want you to know that there was works in the garden before they ever sinned in the way God is describing it. Because Adam had a job. He was naming the animals. How was he doing that? God brought the animals to him and then he named the animals. This is perfect type of work, you know? God brings the job to you, you do the job by his spirit, everything works out fine, you fellowship with God. All these things existed on this earth before sin came. Jesus came, took away sin, brought us back in, it's going to exist again. It is the natural order of the way he created life to be. So, you come into a place where the Holy Spirit is in you, guiding you into all truth. And because he can only guide you in what God says and does, you can live a life the same way Jesus lived here on earth. Where you only say, where your speech is perfect. I know we think maybe it's not possible, but it is. It very much is. Because we have the spirit in us. And if we're guided by that spirit, let me even say it right now. If you're guided by that spirit, you will not sin. I know it's bold, but I'm saying it. If you are guided by that spirit, because it didn't say sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead you into maybe truth. You will not sin. And what you do, the steps you take, everything you do will will be exactly in line with what God says. And so when somebody comes to tell you that the person you love has died, but the spirit doesn't lead you to go right away, or they say he's sick in the case of Lazarus, but then a few days later you say, let's go. I told you there are good things and there are God things. A good person would have said, ah, ah, yes, let's go. Let's go and pray for Lazarus. Let's get him. But the direction, the guidance, it will come at always the right time in all the right ways. That sometimes it might look stupid to everybody around, but it comes to you clearly. He gives you guidance in all things. It's perfect. Empowerment. If we read Acts 1.8, it says you shall read, receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. To be my witnesses in all the earth. So that Holy Spirit that God gave us as a sign that we are his own. In us, he's doing a work of guiding our lives. And also him, his presence upon us empowers us to do every good work that Christ, that God has planned for us long ago. So you're starting to see how, when I say it's comprehensive, he saves us, 
He commits to us by giving us his Holy Spirit. He guides us by that same Holy Spirit. He empowers us by the Holy Spirit that he puts upon us to do the things that he has planned. Right? And then, because we're doing all this, another reality is that we will be protected. Protected. Right? Why do I say protected? Because we still live on this earth. Quite rather, unfortunately, for now. But we still live on this earth where the enemy is still moving around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. But God's love for you and I includes protection. Let's look at it. In John 18, verse 8 to 9. Verse 8 says, I told you that I am he, Jesus said. And since I am the one you want, let the others go. This was when they came to they came to arrest him. And he says, he did, not he, he did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Even while he was here on earth, physically in the flesh, he didn't lose any one of us. Right? Proverbs 18 verse 10 tells us, it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. Right? Psalm 23, 46 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. The rod and thy staff comfort me. Let's look at it. This is a, this is a shepherd writing this. That rod and staff, what does he use, use it to do for the sheep? To guide what does the Holy Spirit do for you as we know now? He guides. You will fear no evil. Why? Because you are guided. Like, I, I, I didn't bring myself here, so why should I be afraid? Like, what, is, what are you talking about? I, I mean, it's just that simple. Like, there's, there's no fear there because you are guided. He says in verse 5, thou prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I told you we're still in this world. So unfortunately, be prepared. But he says he prepares a table for you in the presence. He didn't say he would take you out of this world and give you a table somewhere nice and you'll sit down there and you'll be great. But he's saying that I'm promising protection over you even here in this evil world where you will live a life where you are still enjoying the benefits and the goodness of God in the presence of your enemy. Not people, but the enemy, the evil one, thinking he has authority or domain over your life. But you will be living a comfortable life in the presence of God. He says, thou anoints my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days. Not today, tomorrow, then it will skip Friday and Saturday because it's taking rest days. All the days. I mean, perpetually, perpetually, all the time, enjoying the protection of God. All the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right? Let's read Romans 8, 31 to 37. It says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God 
is for us. Turn to your neighbor, say who. If God is for us, who? Say it really loud, who? You know, because some of us think that, you know, Corona can. Some of us think that, you know, not having uh, a full-time job right now can. Some of us think that, you know, because you're not getting a salary or because you've not yet gotten into college or because you're not yet married, all of these things. But this is what it says. After hearing all these things, that God loves you because he sacrificed for you. He loves you and he's committed to you by giving you his spirit. He loves you by guiding you through his spirit and empowering you to, through his spirit to do everything that he has called for. And now he's telling, he's asking, if you can look at all those things, then now put your life into perspective and ask yourself, what exactly, who exactly can stand between you and God and his love for you? It says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son. See, even the scripture is bringing it back to that original idea of sacrifice. Because if you, if you believe in that sacrifice, you can begin to accept all these things. Right? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Right? How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. I want you to look at that. God says, in Jesus, I have accepted you. And if you can believe that, I am for you. And now he's asking us, who, like I'm the one that you sinned against, right? And I say we're good, right? And so... Like, I don't get it. I, sometimes I feel like this is what God is just doing. It's like, I don't get it. Don't they get it? Like, you, you sinned against God. He says, accept Jesus and we're good. And you accepted Jesus. Ah, fam, we're good now. That's it. That's it. Nothing. Nobody can accuse you. Why? Because Jesus and God have acquitted you. And they're the judge in the court. So if the judge says you're good, you're good. Nobody can come against you. So your protection is intact. Your protection is intact. You belong to God. You are not a prey for the enemy. Let's look at a scripture. Exodus 14, 12 to 14. This is Old Testament, and I know it's Old Testament. But it's an example for us. It says, didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? This is the Israelites, you know. The Israelites are like most of us, you know. God has delivered us, but we don't fully believe in this delivery. We think it's still partial. So he says, they, they told Moses, didn't we tell you this would happen when we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. Don't be a slave to sin and death, Right? Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. 
But what they didn't realize was that they were already dead. Like slaves have no life of their own. It's the truth. Like up until that point, if they killed any one of them, it wouldn't matter. Like their life was useless, practically. But they believed that they somehow had life, even while they were in Egypt. And I want you to know that there's a danger there in believing that in this area where you're not believing God or haven't accepted Jesus, that you have some type of life. No. That because you're, you think you're doing good, you know, you don't tell lies, you don't do all these things, you live a moral life, you live a... I'm telling you, it's dangerous because it's the illusion of life. The illusion of life is that you believe that because you have money, you have good health and you have, you know, you're doing okay. That's the illusion of life. True life is in accepting Jesus and coming back into the presence of God. Right? So when the Israelites were glorifying this illusion of life they had, Moses told them, he says, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. We should make a shirt. Just stay calm. Because why? It's not because, oh yes, these things are not real. It's not because, oh, these things are not coming. But it's because God himself is now in charge of you. Like he brought them out of Egypt. Why would he? It's the same way he's telling us. He says like, I delivered you. I gave my son. Why will I not protect you? It's the same way this Moses was telling the Egyptians. He brought you out of Egypt. Why will he leave you here in the wilderness to die? He won't. And he won't leave each and every one of us, neither one of us in any situation. Because even though you're in a world surrounded, just like the Egyptians, surrounded by the water on the front, on the east, the enemies coming behind, like, it's death on all sides. But because God is the one in charge of you, you are selected. The Israelites did nothing. He chose them in, he, cho he called Abraham. He chose them in Abraham. They didn't do anything. He constantly reminded and saved them because of Abraham. And us, because of Jesus. It's, it's very simple. You are protected, guarded by God himself. Right? And the last part of God's love towards us is fulfillment. Fulfillment. I want you to know that when you say God loves you, there's a fulfillment in it. And this is what I, pre I believe it to be. Is that God's peace is the new order of life for us. Where he brings peace into your situation that allows you to have a sense of contentment, right? If we read this scripture in Hebrews 4, 9 to 16, it says, so there is a special rest waiting for God, for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from all their labors. 
just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all of creation is eaten from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. He is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we what? To what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. There's this special place where you can come to, where you can cease from all the work that you're doing, all the stressing out, all of these things, trying to make your life something, trying to, trying to do things on your own. That place is the rest of God. It's prepared. Like, it's there, it's a place, it's prepared. And the way to enter into that place, like I said, is holding firmly to what we believe. This reality that God loves us and that through Jesus Christ, we have been made alive in him. That because of the love of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, we have access to God. He's committed to us, his spirit is in us, guiding us into all things. His wisdom is there available for us. It says in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And finally, Psalm 23, 1 to 3 tells us, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I sh oh, I was reading the one in my head. There's another one here. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. I want you to see that from the perspective of the writer, David. Right? Because God is in charge of him. Because God is his family. That's the place he's in. Because God's presence is always around him, the shepherd. He lacks nothing. His soul is constantly refreshed. Wherever God leads him, wherever the shepherd leads him, is beside quiet waters, still places. And I'll read this statement as I close. The reality of God's love is this. We have been redeemed from sin and death, translated into the kingdom of God's son, Jesus, who is our high priest. We are in Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father. He, Jesus, is also in us, as we exert his will and authority here on earth. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart to do the good plans of the Most High God. We are living spirit men who live by God's word. We are guided by the spirit of God. And though we are in this evil world, and though we still have this falling flesh, sin has no dominion over us. Peace and wisdom are free gifts from God. We are royal ambassadors and the world is waiting to see us rise.
This is the love of God. And I hope you learned something today. Let us just rise up as we pray.